Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Oh, it's a great day to travel. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio, the show that celebrates responsible travel, culture, and heritage. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're broadcasting from our studio in the Metro Washington, D.C. area. As always, we're happy to welcome you to World Footprints Radio and share today's show with you. If you've been following the news, you'll know that the scientists from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute recently embarked on an historic expedition to virtually raise one of the most famous ships in the world, the Titanic. Dave Gallo from Woods Hole joins us to talk about the mission of the expedition and the current state of the Titanic. And as you probably know, we spent a lot of the time talking this summer about how the sport of soccer is transforming lives. Today, we'll introduce you to Mel Young, founder of the Homeless World Cup. Mel will talk about the impact of soccer on the lives of homeless people worldwide, and he'll talk about this week's start of the World Cup in Brazil. Finally, we'll learn of the history and people of the Saxisca Nation in Alberta, Canada. Tanya and I spent a night in a teepee on the land of this First Nation, and before our adventure, we talked to Shane Breaker of the Blackfoot Heritage Park. As always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And, you know, you can always follow us in real time on Facebook, Twitter, and even YouTube. And, of course, take us with you on the road by signing up for the mobile application, free mobile application, at stitcher.com. And you can find all those links on our website at worldfootprints.com. 25 years after its discovery, the legendary Titanic is in danger of collapsing. In order to assess the rate of the ship's deterioration, a new state-of-the-art expedition is being launched to virtually raise the Titanic. We are pleased to welcome Dave Gallo with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts, who is co-leading the expedition. Dave, welcome. Thank you very much. Woods Hole actually found the Titanic, discovered it about 25 years ago with one of its team. There have been several expeditions to the Titanic since then. What makes this upcoming expedition an historic one? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, uh, that's right, uh, 1985, Dr. Uh, Bob Robert Ballard and his team uh, from here uh, discovered Titanic. And you know, since then, there's been a dozen or so trips back out to the site. Most of them have been either exploration, uh, meaning let's uh, look to see what we can find, uh, or uh, adventure tourism, and sometimes a combination of both. Uh, this trip will be the very first uh, truly scientific expedition to Titanic, where our mission is to go out and collect data about the ship itself. Mm-hmm. Now, now you, you, you keyed in on something I was going to um, ask you about. You mentioned uh, adventure tourism, and we actually had uh, someone on our show Oh, a few months ago, a gentleman by the uh, by the name of Nick Halleck, who is a self-described uh, thrillionaire, I guess, um, <laughs> who the, you know, a guy with money who takes adventures essentially, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and Nick actually um, part. He actually participated in one of these adventure tours where he actually paid uh, to be. Uh, to sit on a submersible, I guess, and 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 uh, descend down to the Titanic. Now I'm wondering, are these 
expeditions or these um, adventures, I guess, uh, conducted by private organizations or yeah. your organization, Woods Hole? No, they're, no they're, they're, it's a private organization, the ones that have been done in the past. Um, I believe the company's name is Deep Ocean Expeditions. Okay. And uh, they worked in collaboration with the uh, uh, Russian, the ship, the Keldish, and the two Russian submarines, the Mirrors. I've actually been on one of those. I didn't dive to Titanic, mm-hmm. but I've been aboard during one of those uh, expeditions, and it was fascinating. I, I, I was, uh, we were fortunate enough to put some cameras on uh, the sub, so we got a, a fresh look at Titanic. But looking at some of the uh, and talking to the people that made the trip, they were truly enthusiastic about what the whole experience. Yeah, pretty I, cool thing. I'm just curious, Dave. Though are, uh, I know that the Titanic is in danger of deteriorating, and we want to ask mm-hmm. you why that is. But I'm just wondering if some of these um, other explorations and, and and expeditions around the Titanic uh, for non-scientific purposes. Uh, uh, have contributed to some of the the decay and deteriorate, deterioration. Oh, you know, I, I, we hear all sorts of stories that there were uh, the, the submarine ran into the hull or the um, dive weights because the submarines uh, have to drop weights to come back to the surface that that's littered with weights and on and on and on. And you know, it's all anecdotal, so uh, meaning uh, there's no real hard evidence for any of that. So uh, you know, in this expedition coming up, we're going to map using cameras and sonars, uh, the hulls, the, the, the bow, the stern, and, and all of the seafloor in between and around the Titanic. So we're going to see everything. So this will be the first time when we have a real good look at everything that's in and around that ship, and we'll have a good idea about what looks like uh, damage from things like that. But, you know, having been, again, involved in that uh, expedition and, and knowing the operators of the sub, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the Russian mirrors, uh, they're uh, incredibly professional and truly, truly mindful of that site and treat it with up, uh, utmost respect. So uh, I'd be surprised. They're very careful about what they do. You mentioned that this expedition to the Titanic is different than the others in that it's scientific. What yeah. do you think you're going to learn or the team expects to learn uh, from, a, from a scientific engineering standpoint and so forth uh, from this expedition that would you know, shed some light on some things that we don't already know or can't possibly yeah. model uh, in, in terms mm-hmm. of, of looking retrospectively at what had happened to the Titanic. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but we expect to know everything. <laughs> of course, that's <laughs> of course. Uh, you, you know, the uh, we're we're going to uh, there's there's no there's no submarines involved uh, that involve people, so it's all going to be done with ro- uh-huh. robots. The reason for that is because uh, we want precise measurements, uh-huh. and uh, we want to cover every little inch, every little inch of uh, of uh, seafloor and of the hull. So. Robots are great for that. They, they do, uh, you know, you don't have the, the brains inside the robots don't want to go over there and look behind that uh, behind that rock or inside that hatchway. Mm-hmm. Um, if all goes well, uh, we will uh, be able to virtually reconstruct the Titanic in a computer and then be able to explore that world, that virtual Titanic, the way that we can do it from a submarine out there in the, in the ocean. That's if all goes, you know, that's the end game in a way. Uh, but at the same time, we're going to be taking a lot of measurements of the hull, uh, a lot of sampling uh, in certain spaces, places of the hull. Uh, we, we want scientific data about how fast things are deteriorating on the site. And we do want to know where everything is. Every, you know, if it's a personal object like a pair of eyeglasses or, 
or shoes or a suitcase that's out in that debris field or a piece of the ship, a bell, uh, a light, uh, a, a bench, uh, we want to know, again, where that is. And, and the whole idea here is, is to be able to preserve Titanic for future generations. Uh, understand what's happening now, how long is it going to be around, but also start building this virtual world that people 100 or 200 years from now can uh, see Titanic the way we can today. Now, the Titanic is perhaps the most famous ship ever, and it spawned an industry globally where you've got Titanic museums, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously the film. Why do you think uh, this longstanding interest in the Titanic, uh, you know, decades later? I remember after the discovery, I came the year after, uh, right in the middle of the frenzy of the discovery to Woods Hole. And uh, I remember a couple years later saying, well, I'm, I'm kind of glad that's over with because now we can get on to the other stories from the deep. <laughs> and it's, it's growing. Yeah. You know, it, it, it amazes me. I think James Cameron's movie uh, certainly uh, whipped people into a frenzy. And, uh, and today, here we are many years beyond the movie uh, in the Avatar age. <laughs> <laughs> Where, and uh, coming up on the 100th anniversary of the sinking, the yeah. 25th anniversary of the discovery. And I think, uh, again, it's peaking, this interest in Titanic. And, and I guess it's because of all the range of uh, the stories, that uh, the human interactions that played out on board that ship that night so many years ago in the middle of the Titanic. You know, you had the best and worst of humanity uh, going on in, in one spot. Plus, you also had this this uh, mistaken belief in technology that the ship would never sink. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. people relate in a lot of different ways to that, uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to the story. Uh, Dave, I, I want to circle back to, to the, the concern um, for the current state of the, the Titanic. Why is it in danger of deteriorating now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's these pesky little microbes at the bottom of the sea that are actually eating away at the hull of the, of the ship. And mm. uh, what it appears to us like rust. So all that rust you see dripping off the sides of the ship, uh, that's uh, the microbes munching away at the hull. And uh, uh, we just don't know how fast that's uh, really happening. And we, again, we have some, uh, some anecdotal evidence that the walls look thinner, that the uh, ceilings look like they're drooping, that the passageways look like they're falling in on one another. Uh, but do we have real measurements to understand how fast that's happening or if it's really happening? We don't. And um, there's some here and there, but not in a comprehensive way. Mm-hmm. So we're really going to go attack this in a, almost like a CSI sort of way uh, to really begin to get some hard evidence about what's going on with that wreck. And, you know, this would be the first deepwater archaeologic site. Uh, and you, you just think about all those archaeologists on land with their little brushes brushing away uh, carefully uh, the sand on top of a shard of pottery. Uh, we're not going to be doing exactly that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, it falls along those lines. That kind of precision is what we're looking for at the bottom of the sea when we start to make our measurements. I see. And, and so after, you, after the damage is uh, assessed, um, what then? Will there be any mm-hmm. salvage activities um, in, in, the, you know, in the event that you uh, um, determine that the ship is, is rapidly uh, mm-hmm. disintegrating? Maybe you know that's not for, from from the Woods Hole perspective. That's not our uh, our job to decide that. Ours mm-hmm. is to provide the information. Uh, but uh, the uh, head of this expedition, the, the people that brought this together, is RMS Titanic Inc. The people that have they are selvers in possession. 
Right. Uh, they have uh, those wonderful exhibits that tour around that initially I thought that's a bad idea, horrible. And, and once I visited, totally turned my mind around. Uh, it's a very powerful way to tell the story. And, you know, that's where our interests cross, that Woods Hole, our, our interest is telling the story of the sea. Their interest is telling the story of the shipwreck in the sea. So we, we came together on that. But also on board we're going to have uh, archaeologists from the Institute of Nautical Archaeology and from a National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration and National Park Service. You know, it's a serious group of people that normally would be at, somewhat at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we are, thanks to RMS Titanic, Inc., on the same boat with the same interest in mind, which is to, to preserve the, the uh, legacy of that ship and the people that sailed on her uh, for, forever. So, you know, the decision about what to do will be decided by uh, the, those kinds of people, the archaeologists and the policymakers, not by, not by Woods Hole. You know, fortunately, I, 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 uh, uh, most of our team, there aren't many Titanic buffs on board that uh, ship. We have a true appreciation for Titanic, but we have to stand uh, a bit dispassionate about Mm. what we're about to do. Um, We get in trouble real easy if you start to get, everyone gets their own ideas about how to, uh, how Titanic should be treated. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we have to be the boring scientists and engineers. (laughs) (laughs) We do a good job at that. Dave, one of the interesting uh, facts about most shipwrecks is that, uh, perhaps not surprising, uh, is that they occur in shallow water for the most part in, mm-hmm. in terms of where the ships are recovered. What do we know about the area where the Titanic sank? Are there mm-hmm. other ships in that proximate area, and mm-hmm. what's kind of the history of, of ships mm-hmm. traveling that path? Yeah, yeah, that's a very, you're the first person to ever asked that question, so, and I don't, ha- I'm not armed with the facts, uh, but there are other ships in that area. Uh, I don't know exactly what they are or where they are. Uh, they're not very nearby, but I mean, within maybe 30, 40, 50 miles of Titanic, mm-hmm. I've heard there are other wrecks that went down. Um, you know, uh, yes, sure, uh, most shipwrecks are in shallow water, either a little bit easier to find because it's shallow water. Uh, but also, that's where they most of the traffic is. So when they sink, they hit rocks, and you know it's, it's quite often happens in shallow water. Mm-hmm. Um, we're about two and a half miles deep, so that's two and a half times deeper than Deepwater Horizon was. You know, and even at a mile deep or Deepwater Horizon, the BP oil spill, mm-hmm. uh, we knew very little about that environment. We know even less about this environment this deep. So uh, we do know that uh, there are storms that move through there, that you can have a very clear day on Titanic where you can see big pieces of the hull uh, from, the, uh, from the cameras. But uh, on other days you can have these storms that come through and it's like uh, working in a blizzard. Uh, we know there are, you know, there are, aside from Titanic, at the deep ocean, the place that we thought was just mud-covered and quiet, uh, we find underwater lakes, underwater rivers, underwater waterfalls. We find uh, really. Oh yeah, oh it's amazing. It's just you see some of these things, and you have to wonder if if it's all a dream. Uh, it's and uh, so we and we've only explored about four percent of the deep ocean at the depth of like where Titanic is. So uh, we're familiar with that one spot, but when you get away from the hull of Titanic, a little bit further out into the countryside, if you will. Uh, it becomes totally unfamiliar terrain to us, so you never know what we're going to see off in those uh, off in those areas. So it's kind of cool that way. But there are other wrecks down there, and they're uh, you know every single year. And and I keep finding this hard to believe, so I keep hedging my bets. Uh, the number I was given is 14 uh-huh. uh, ships ships the size of Titanic go to the bottom. Uh, another 
small crew, you know, 14, 20 people, something like that. They're uh, typically carrying ore or maybe sometimes uh, hydrocarbon petroleum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they're registered in foreign ports, and they sink in the middle of nowhere because you have uh, typhoons and rogue waves. And you, we never hear about that uh, unless you're in the, in the business. Wow. So, uh, right, so every single year those ships go to the bottom. And from Titanic, we're learning that you know, when ships used to sink into the deep sea, we would commit the ship and the souls aboard for eternity to the deep. That's a powerful statement because yes. now with our submarines and robots, we've crossed that boundary. You know, this thing that we called eternity, here we are. You know, we turn the lights on and is this eternity? Well, not really. So uh, when we go look at these shipwrecks like Titanic and uh, other ones that may be even deeper, uh, we go with this real uh, utmost sense of uh, respect uh, mm-hmm. for that for that world. But it, it's kind of cool because you just never know what you're going to uh, to find. And uh um, but we do know that the the mission is to to learn how to work around these sites. Now, uh, Dave, I, I know that the um, the the expedition ship, the scientific vessel that you you guys are are traveling mm-hmm. on, um, is uh, is a little bit smaller. And I know you have um, media teams, uh, not world mm-hmm. footprints, I might add, which you know we'll have to change for next time. <laughs> it's a travesty. Yeah, some people out. As soon as I get up there, I'm kicking some people out. Oh, okay. <laughs> but 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 part of your scientific team is actually um, going to stay uh, landside, and so yeah. how are you going to? How is it going to work with part of your 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 scientific team on board yeah. and the other, you know, half on land? You know, it's it's really painful. It was. Uh, you always need more space on board a ship. And uh, in this ship, we've got room for about 30 team members, and we had about 40 that we really needed. So uh, you have to make do. You have to double up. Uh, someone that may be uh, working with the robots may have to spend some time helping with the camera systems. Um, it's, uh, the ships go when you leave port. When we leave St. John's on Sunday night, uh, we leave at about 8 o'clock. We'll arrive at Titanic 36 hours later, about 8 a.m. From that moment on, it's 24 hours, 24-7, around-the-clock uh, operations. So we'll have robots coming and going, mm. uh, cameras being, uh, inf- data being downloaded, data being processed. Uh, it's difficult to get, uh, if you get three hours of sleep a day, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty good. And, and, and those are in the good times. So this is going to be a real uh, lot of stress on, the, uh, on, on all the teams involved. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll, we'll make do. Uh, we'll, it's not going to be easy, but we'll... Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I joked. A joke about having the uh, media along because they're, are they necessary for the operations? No, no, they're not. But you know what? The getting the information to the public about what we're doing and why it's important is incredibly important. You know that that is probably just as important as the work we're doing is because honestly, this is for the sake of the public. What we're about to go do. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Be, they become important team members, which means that maybe they should be working <laughs> to keep them up, see if they're willing to stay up 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'll find out soon enough. <laughs> well, we, 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 we actually do that. Just, you know, just planting a seed for next time, seriously. So. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it, it does happen. It, it becomes important that you know, we have the lovely word embedded. Um, mm-hmm. But, boy, it's so important these days because I think uh, if you're just, watching the documentary uh, or you're just watching the newscast uh, you you get just a snippet and you lose uh, and usually that snippet is based around some real highlight mm-hmm. that uh, already you, you think oh that's what people want to hear 
the under, I, I'm always amazed, and I know my other team members are as well, that uh, the ability for these crews to miss the important points to us, the, the real aha moments. And so being embedded in a group like that, um, I think there's a more powerful story uh, there yes. uh, than what people often hear. Talk to us a bit about <coughs> about dealing with uh, uh, the issue of cameras and the images that uh, will mm -hmm. come out of the expedition. Uh, when we mm -hmm. look at these pictures from underwater, we're often amazed as, as, as we were when we saw the, the crisis in the Gulf unfold. But sure. from a scientific perspective, what are you looking for that the layman would mm -hmm. not necessarily see in an image? Yeah, see, now, uh, that's a very good point, because actually what I'm looking for is exactly that viewpoint of what the public's going to see, because what I like to do, uh, I, I got into this world because of a single image in National Geographic magazine back in 1976. I, I, was, I had a very successful career selling shoes, and, and National Geographic flipped the switch in my mind with this one image in a magazine that, uh, that got my curiosity going, and I never looked back. So I, I'm always looking for that. Uh, switch for other people too, and uh, when we uh, are, are the best we can do with our cameras is to recreate what we see at the bottom of the sea mm -hmm. for the viewer that's not there. And uh, this one character, Billy Lang, his name is, uh, builds some of the best underwater uh, cameras on Earth, and he happens to be the person that night in 1985 that first saw Titanic on that screen and recognized it as a piece of the mm. piece of the ship. So this is Billy's dream too, and. If we do our job well enough, we can start to create. You know, the, the images that really captured us back in 1985-86 are the, the whole bow of Titanic, the whole stern of Titanic with the submarine sitting on deck. One was on the cover of Ballard's book. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are drawings. That's done by an artist. That's done by Ken Marshall, who's, uh, who's incredibly talented. Uh, our, so they're not real. Uh, you know, our job is to give you that real image. So what you see, that incredible image of the hull of Titanic sitting on the rolling sediments of the deep Atlantic, that that's the real image. That's, that's really the way it looks. And that with your own computer technology and your own home or video game technology even, that you can begin to explore that wreck on your own and find that one image yourself, whether it's the bow or the stern or the propellers or someplace else. It's that you, you have that experience that I had flipping through the pages of National Geographic uh, that uh, might throw that switch in your head that you say, wow, this is pretty cool stuff. <laughs> now, you raised a, 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 something that I, I did want to, uh, to share with our audience is that um, Titanic enthusiasts, uh, anyone actually can follow your expedition in, in real time. Can you uh -huh. uh, talk a little bit about that and share the, the website where they can go to, to yep. see what you guys are doing? Mm -hmm. the, the website is expeditiontitanic.com. And uh, there will be uh, daily updates, plus uh, you'll see video, I believe, and, and then uh, certainly stills of what's going on on board that ship. Uh, and then uh, NBC will be along with this, and so I think you're going to be getting daily uh, updates on NBC as well. And for the longer-term History Channel, we'll be producing a documentary about what's going on out there. But I think uh, starting with the website, expeditiontitanic.com, would be a great way to go. And I do believe there's ways there to interact with the team at sea so you can write uh, emails out to us. Well, I'm, I'm not positive, but I think that was in the works. Um, but the whole idea is to get information out as quickly as uh, as we can about what we're doing. Right. What we're doing out there. 
I, I hear the weather out there is absolutely horrible right now. So oh. uh, it could be a real interesting. <laughs> he might be happy sitting back <laughs> on land watching the activity from a nice comfy spot. <laughs> well, we we uh, we wish you safe travels, uh, my friend, and uh, uh, look forward to to hearing more from you after you return. Thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. When we return, Homeless World Cup founder Mel Young stops by to talk about this event, which is underway in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprint Radio every Tuesday. I want to change some things. I want to help more kids graduate from high school. I want more of my neighbors to have access to health care. I want to change what I see around here. United Way is creating real, lasting change where you live by focusing on the building blocks of a better life. Education, income, and health. I just want to see more smiles on my sidewalks. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. For more, visit United Way at liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Hi, my name's Jennifer Jones and I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. I love listening to the World Footprints radio show online. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We spent a lot of time talking about the transformative power of soccer. From the FIFA World Cup to Street Soccer USA, we've learned that a soccer ball can change the world. On today's show, we're pleased to introduce Mel Young, president and co-founder of the Homeless World Cup an organization that's using football to help end homelessness on a global level. Mel, the Homeless World Cup was born out of your desire to create an international language that would enable the homeless to communicate with each other. Talk to us about the evolution of the Homeless World Cup and share some of its history with us today. Well, it it came up from a, a simple conversation I was having with a colleague of mine um, after a conference uh, that we'd had with the, the street papers, the international network of street papers, who, who were homeless people sell the street papers to earn a little money. And um, myself and a colleague were talking about how good a conference it had been from an international perspective. You know, we were sharing ideas, um, exchanging partnerships, um, um, coming up with, with, with new concepts and so on and so forth, and basically um, giving each other support um, and it was very inspiring. Um, but we said, if, whilst it was very inspiring, there was no homeless people there, o- on, only editors or founders or directors or whatever. And how could we involve homeless people in the same kind of international uh, inspiration that we were experiencing? So we, we talked about maybe doing some exchanges, and then there was maybe problems with, uh, with visas or employment law, and then maybe language, and we said, aha, international language called football we call it i think in europe you call it soccer so let's call it soccer uh you know soccer is an international language and we were both really were into soccer and the person i was speaking to harold schmidt had played a bit when um uh, uh we we talked about it further and i said well maybe some of our homeless people in scotland could be part of a team and harold said some of his from austria could be part and we agreed we'd play a match we kept talking we said why don't why don't countries from all over the world come and um so you know we, we let this idea just stay till a little and then and then basically um 18 months later we made it happen we had the first event where 18 countries took part in Graz in Austria um, and each country had been working with a homeless 
uh, people uh, in the lead up to it. And it's a very simple game. The beauty of it's simple. So mm-hmm. you, 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 anybody can play. You can be really terrible, or you can be brilliant, or you can be old and young, and male and female, and big and small, and whatever. And you can participate, and you can play two aside, or you can play twenty aside. You can play in a room. You can play in a big field, and more importantly, from our point of view, you can play in the street. So mm-hmm. it's very simple to set up and include people. And what we found is that people becoming part of a team, a psychological t- change starts taking place. It's like they're being part of a family. They have to pass the ball, and they have to be connected. And then simply we, we, we select the best players to represent their country, and then we have this this uh, this event that uh, uh, takes place now once a year. Now, Mel, you know, there are, I know your, your goal when you started uh, uh, Homeless World Cup uh, was to... Eliminate homelessness, uh, essentially, and and just give people that basic need of of a home, of uh, you know, a community. And there are over one billion homeless people in the world today, and that's a lot of people to to serve. What are some of the the logistical, um, organizational things that Homeless World Cup is doing on a global level to help such this large population? Well, um, uh, a couple of points just to answer your question. I, I mean, we, we're all over the world now, so we're, we're in 80 countries, and, 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 and soccer is an easy way of uh, um, uh, bringing people together from the, from the streets. But critically, from our point of view, it's not about just an annual event we have. It's about all the work that's done in the other 51 weeks of the year. The annual event is really kind of a celebration, if you like, of all the work that's been done. And critical to that is change. It's about impact. And, you know, we do research and 80% of the players who've been involved with us change their lives, can completely come off drugs and alcohol, get to houses, jobs, go to college, etc. And that's been consistent year on year. So uh, what we are trying to do is expand our projects as much as possible so that they can involve more and more people because it quite clearly works. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more, the more you get involved, the greater the outcome you have. So that's the first point. Crit- critical for us, it's not just about a kind of game and, uh, 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 that happens once a year. It's about the impact that happens all the year round and the change, and it's critical. Otherwise, there's no point in us doing it. Second issue is, um, well, a billion people, and it's like, I think for a human brain to comprehend a billion people homeless is too much almost to comprehend. Yes, it is. So I kind of believe, I, I, I kind of believe that what you've got to do is, 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 is just do what's there in your own backyard, if you like. And, it, and people need to, c- to come in and do a little something. And so getting involved in soccer is something really easy to do from those who are not homeless can get the homeless people playing uh, football, if you like. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I, I just believe that all these tiny steps, that we all take these tiny steps together, before you know where you are, you've got a giant wave going on. And that's kind of what's happening with us already. We started with, this, with just a ball and a few players. And, you know, now, now there's at least 40,000 homeless people trying to get on this year's event alone. They, they, they expanded the project in Mexico recently, and I know that they, they had lead-up tournaments to the Mexico Homeless Cup with 10,000 homeless players involved. My goodness. So that's that's a- a- adding on greatly. And that's just, again, about tiny steps in 32 states around Mexico with a few people, and it grows. And then we add it all together, and all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to make a difference. We have some way to go before we get to a billion. But I, I, I do believe... Absolutely, in this world these days, there is no reason why anybody should be homeless. Mm-hmm. None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it is very easy, I think, when there are so many people homeless, particularly in U.S. cities, to walk on by, and you just think, well, it's just part of life, you know. And I think we, 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 if we do that, we're lulling ourselves into a false area because really nobody should be on the street. So uh, um, we, have, we have a long way to go, but we've made a start, and it's quite substantial, the impact we're making. The Homeless World Cup really is doing things and, and succeeding in reaching the homelessness and changing lives in, in ways that other outreach programs haven't. Why do you think that's the case? Um, well, I mean, I think we, um, I mean, other programs will do, and everybody moves at a different different pace. I think the beauty of this is, is it's very easy to get involved, and then once you're involved, you're, you're part of a team. So my experience working with homeless people is that as soon as you become homeless, you become very isolated, and it's a very lonely experience. You're on your own. And then in your attempt to survive day to day, you become selfish. That doesn't mean that, that, that all homeless people are selfish people. It's just that's what human beings have to be to survive. You just have to think about yourself. How do I get through tomorrow? I just think about myself. And so when you start to get involved in this program, it's about all of a sudden, well, you have the ball. You have to pass it to somebody else uh, if you're going to be part of this team. And so it, just by that act, a kind of a sense of camaraderie starts to emerge. So I, I, I believe in this growing of kind of community or family is very, very important, if you like, um, in terms of a psychological change that's taking place. And sport is just a beautiful a way in which you can involve people and make people, people feel connected. Mm-hmm. So there's something quite profound happening psychologically, I think, as soon as you start kicking a ball around um, uh, amongst other people who are homeless. Mel, I'm, I'm just curious. You know, we've had a lot of wonderful people on our show, from Lawrence Kahn with uh, Street Soccer USA um, to other philanthropists. And, and uh, I'm just curious, how, what is it about the homeless? How did you discover that your purpose was to serve this population? Where, where, how did they become um, part of your heart, this population? Well, uh- I, I mean, it started off like, like, like a lot of things. It's almost by kind of, you know, I don't know, I just kind of arrived there. You know, I didn't necessarily make a conscious decision. But um, I, I was a journalist. Um, my background as a journalist. I was working as a journalist. And in the U.K., where I'm from, Scotland, in the, in the early 1990s, there was an increased level of, 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 of homelessness, a lot of people in the streets. And, and myself and friends, we, we, we didn't like it. And... Uh, you know, it, it jarred with us. It certainly jarred with me, and I've I've always been brought up with a kind of sense of fair play, which I think comes from my kind of, my mother. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and Scotland is quite a it believes in in community, in 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 neighbourhoods, and people looking after themselves. And in the old days, it used to be never lock the back door because you know you trusted everybody. And so I kind of believe in it, it, as human beings that that's what we need to build trust in our neighbourhoods and our communities. Um, and and so, the fact that people were lying in the streets really jarred with me. I didn't I didn't like it. But then Scots were also quite good at moaning. You know, we we moan about the weather and the, how terrible the football <laughs> team is. And, and 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 you know, so we were doing that. And I was I, I, I'm saying, yeah, but maybe we should say something constructive. What what can we do? Um, uh, uh, um, surely, you know, we could do something. What what is it? And um, 
I saw that a street paper had started in London called The Big Issue, mm-hmm. and um, I thought, well, I'm a journalist. I, I, I could I could write and I could produce the magazine. So myself and a colleague called Tricia Hughes, we, we spoke with the founders of The Big Issue in London, and, and they basically said, um, well... Um, you know, uh, it, it it might work in Scotland, but we don't at the time have the resources to 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 to, to make it work because it's it's busy, it's new in London, and it's growing and it's successful. So if you want to start it, use the name the big issue and and just just start it. So I I, I made that leap. Everyone kind of said I was mad, um, but I thought, well, you know, I'll I'll give this a year at least, you know, and try and make a contribution. I can always go back to journalism if it doesn't work. And um, and it was just a, a huge success. Homeless people selling the magazine, hmm. and 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 then and then I after it was successful in Scotland, I helped to start some others in Eastern Europe, and then and then I, I just became in, heavily involved in it. Um, so I didn't make a kind of a, a conscious decision, um, but I wanted to make a, a contribution. And then kind of I don't know, fate or destiny or whatever took over, and I'm 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 very passionate about it now. Um, and um, as I was saying earlier, I mean, I think if everybody takes a little step, and what I was doing was maybe making more than a little step, a slightly bigger step, but doing something and then look what happened. Right. Um, and I, I, as I say, I, I've had the, the experience for me has been very extreme. So some really terrible days when, when homeless people, particularly young people, have died. Um, and, and then even on the same day, others that have suddenly transformed and got jobs and houses and got married or whatever and, and, and changed their lives. And um, mm-hmm. so it's, 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 it's challenging sometimes, but, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I do believe that the contribution impact that people can make can really change lives. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're amazing human beings. We, 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 we've invented this website where we can connect all around the world and even this conversation now is we're talking all uh, easily around the world so we've made these things possible so i i just think actually we should look after our fellow human beings uh um with using the same ingenuity and same innovation and same determination then you can end homelessness mm. now mel for many of the participants uh, the uh, homeless world cup offers uh really their first travel experience. Uh, I'm sure you've got some stories as to how the participation in the event has changed lives and just just some of those uh, lighthearted moments. Uh, talk to us about some of the things that kind of resonate with, with you through uh, your years of involvement. Well, yes. I mean, many, many of the homeless people, you know, haven't even been out of their cities, let alone onto an airplane to another country. And I think I think it's fantastic when the players all get together. They can't speak the same language, but it, but but the atmosphere and amongst the teams is 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 incredible. I'm sure when you spoke with Lawrence Can before, he would tell you about that. Mm-hmm. Just people playing together with the ball, and it's fantastic, and it does it does change lives. But uh, uh, let me share a couple of stories for for for, for me for, for me that kind of illustrate. First of all, is one one about the kind of the change that happens uh, in the in the players, and it's very very important because you can see them changing in front of your eyes, given the experience. But, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we've had one or two, in fact, one very recently, footballers who've, who've become professional, and it's the story the media want. But to me, it's summed up like this. One day I, um, in Scotland, I got on the bus uh, going home, and the bus driver said hello to me. And I looked at him, and I went, who, who are you? I didn't quite recognize him. And he said, no, look, it's me. I, I, I used to play in the football team. I, got <laughs> in, I was homeless, and I got on the football team, and I'm... Here I am. I'm trying to say, oh yeah. I said, oh, I do remember you absolutely. But of course, he had a uniform on, and his hair was cut a bit, and he looked different. And I said, oh no, no, I do remember you. 
And he said, yeah, well, afterwards I came back and, and, I, and I managed to get a job. You know, I got a, a driving license, a job to drive the bus. I got, I've got a, house, a rented house and now I'm engaged to be married. And so as a result of the football, my life is com, com, completely changed, you know. So th- th- this is, these are magical moments for me. This is the best. Because it's, it's, it's okay, he's a bus driver, but, but he's changed his life completely. Yeah, and, and he's, he's getting smiling. married. You know, I have to say, I, I was getting, getting goose married. pimples when you, when you shared this story. <laughs> yeah, well, well it, was, it kind of had a funny ending, because we were talking, you know, I was standing in the bus talking with him, and, and um, I was going, you better be careful, you'll lose your job, because all the passengers were getting fed up with not, the bus not moving, there's a big line of cars <laughs> behind the bus, <laughs> so I <laughs> had to move, but... Uh, but to me, it's 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 important, and then and then you have other stories. Uh, we kind of illustrate the change because I remember this um, when when we had the homeless World Cup in Cape Town in South Africa in, in 2006, and um, the Danish manager, the team of, of Denmark, told me that, that before they left, the Danish team said, "There's nobody worse off than us in the world. To be homeless in Denmark is the worst. It's, mm-hmm. You can't be worse." And she said, "No, but you're going to Africa." And some people will be worse off there. And they said, no, 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 it, 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 it's, it's not possible. Um, and um, when they went down there, of course, within, a, within one day, and they were out in the, some of the, um, the, the shanty towns and so on, they, they, they quickly said, um, oh, wow, um, actually, there's people who are a lot worse of us. And they, they changed their whole perception of themselves as a result. Mm-hmm. So immediately they started saying, hey, we can, we can help these people by doing this. And so it just in these moments, who completely lifted their whole identity, if wow. you like. And then similarly with the South Africans, they, they, they had thought themselves in the same position, and they, they, they said, we didn't ever realize anyone who was white could be homeless. So their whole perception was changed, that somebody from apparently a, a, a richer country could be homeless as well in the same position for them. So both sets of players who thought they were at the bottom mm-hmm. now had a juxtaposition and decided that they weren't, and therefore changed their whole perception um, altogether. So I've seen that happening, and, and 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 so. But there's many, many stories I could go on forever on your program. That, that's uh, talking that's, about. Uh, yeah, that that's powerful, really. I mean, just the transformation that these players uh, um, experience. Just you know, not only visiting another country, but seeing other people who are similarly situated. That they didn't expect and I think what I found very touching is that their first inclination was to help was you know to, to extend uh, a helping hand to to others who um, they felt were were perhaps in a uh, more disadvantaged situation than they than they were and so I think that's just a, a you know a powerful dynamic that that occurs and, and it's something similar that uh, Lawrence uh, shared with us as well and um, and I and I love the fact that homeless World Cup is international and you each year unlike FIFA each year you have a, <clears throat> a World Cup in a different uh, global city and I'm, I'm just curious how do you select the cities this year i know you'll be in um rio next year paris but how are yeah. these cities selected um yeah i mean i mean you know exactly right the international connection is is is, is really incredible and a lot of the players uh, retain friendships uh, for for afterwards forever across across the world that they didn't, they didn't have before and it's it's very very powerful and um you know we're as you know as i say we're about we're about change 
Um, we we want to move it around the world every year, uh, partly because homeless people we think can only see a year out. I mean, if you were to say there's a World Cup in four years, I don't think they may be so connected in. But we, when we say it's a year, um, and and they can only get to go once, it's something to 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 aim at. And then the second reason is we want to kind of uh, let everybody know in different parts of the world what we do, so we move it around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this year is the first time in South America. Um, and um, But really, we, we're in the same place now as the, the Olympics or whatever because, because cities bid to host it. So uh, ah. they kind of fight each, they fight each other. Um, and I find it quite entertaining now because I see that, <laughs> that the, city, the cities that previously wanted homeless people to move away from the streets and now fight each other so that all the people who are homeless in the world can come to their city. Mm. So we, we've changed perceptions considerably, I think. <laughs> that, 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 that I, I'm chuckling because, I, I mean, I, I, I uh, understand the, um, <laughs> just the, uh, the, the interesting dynamic there. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, now, during the World Cup this year, um, I know it starts September 19th and yeah. goes through, I think, the 25th. 26th. Yeah, 26th. 25th, 25th. Yeah, you're right. Now, <laughs> how, can, how can the public um, see the, uh, or, or can the public see the, um, see the events? Will you have a live stream? Will you have um, kind of a, 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 a regular YouTube updates? Um, how how can the public kind of follow the um, the matches? Right. I mean, at the moment, the simplest thing to do is to go to our website. Uh, we're just updating our website to be able to take a number of the kind of streamings and and and, and um, uh, little kind of video diaries, if you like. So it's it's which is www.homelessworldcup.org. Um, if you go on there, people go on there to be able to kind of follow it. Um, we're talking with Brazilians now about different types of streaming. I don't know whether what will happen. It differs from year to year, and it's usually done at the last minute, and this year is no different. We prefer it was done earlier. But I think in future years we'll have a kind of live streaming all the time. Mm-hmm. But, but in this occasion, it's still we're still talking about it. So, But the, the homelessworldcup.org, it will do regular updates at the very minimum. Okay. Um, you know, you, you'll get a, 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 a written report of a match two minutes after it's finished oh. on the website, as Ex- it is. But 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 um, so you'll be able to follow whatever team, be it the, be it the U.S. team or um, or any other country. Okay, excellent. And certainly at uh, homelessworldcup.org, uh, people can also donate to to the cause and help uh, help with the financial support because I, I know that uh, the financial need is is uh, is tremendous. Um, one other one last question before we leave, and and this is just to kind of solve a global controversy. As a Scot, and you know, with Fitzpatrick, we have the you know we have those Irish ties. What country has the best link golf courses, Scotland or Ireland? Because you hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm 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 bound to say Scotland because, um, well, I'm Scottish, and it, I would be kind of I don't know thrown in jail for not saying so, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think well, Scotland. They would say is kind of born in. Sorry, golf was born in Scotland, and, and um, you know it has St Andrews, which they say was the home of golf. So, um, and uh, I think some of the courses here are spectacular. Ireland's also. So it's a pretty close close call. Some beautiful golf courses, but I think Scotland wins. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> I, I mean, with this international, with this international. 
a president, I guess now I have to always, I've learned to be diplomatic internationally now. <laughs> I can't be supporting Scotland at, at the event now, I have to support everybody. <laughs> Indeed. We thank you so much for being with us. Mel Young, the president and co-founder of the Homeless World Cup, we wish you all the success in Rio. After the break, we'll take you to Alberta, Canada for a visit to the Blackfoot Heritage Park when World Footprints Radio continues. Hey, this is Amy. I'm from Manitoba. Woo, Manitoba. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. It rocks my socks. This is Reba McIntyre for RAD. You know, I see a lot of funny things traveling all over this beautiful country of ours, but one thing that's not very funny is when someone gets in a car trying to drive when they're drunk. Take their keys away from them because friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Okay, my name is Shane. I'm a Blackfoot from the Six Gun Nation. I encourage you to tune into World Footprints Radio and come out to Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park in Southern Alberta to experience the Blackfoot people and culture. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. If we were greeting you in Blackfoot, we would say, Okie, as we learned on our visit to the Sisica Nation in Alberta about an hour east of Calgary. The Sisica Nation is part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. On our recent visit there, we spent a night in a teepee and enjoyed some food, music, and dance as part of our introduction to the culture and heritage of the Sisica people. We sat down with Shane Breaker of the Blackfoot Crossing Heritage Park to learn more about this First Nation and their efforts to build a remarkable museum to tell the story of his people. The idea behind Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park has been, I guess, on the table for about 30 years with the Sixaga Nation. Um, it started back in uh, 1977 when Prince Charles himself came out to the 100th anniversary um, commemoration of the Treaty Number no. 7. Again, it was signed in 1877 with uh, the Queen, and so that treaty is still held uh, in trust uh, uh, with the Queen. And so in 18, 1977, uh, we had a big celebration. And so a lot of the, the, peop- the leaders and the chief of council at the time uh, had an idea um, going forward is to, to have a place uh, for the culture, for our language, and to really um, tell the story of the Blackfoot people from the Blackfoot point of view. So from 1977 on <clears throat> to 2007, uh, within that 30-year spread, there was uh, funding issues. Again, f- trying to fund a, a place of this magnitude. Uh, uh, we never had uh, enough funding to do that. Uh, support from the Canadian government and support from the provincial government of Alberta was never there. It was never solid. Um, and so that, that was the issues in the, in the past. Uh, uh, so it was shelved for many years, and there was there was plans drawn uh, up, and there was uh, different uh, terms of chief of council would always bring up the the issue, the ideas. You, you know, let's let's try this, let's uh, let's try it again this year. Let's see if we can find some funding. Um, so back in the 1990s, um, it wasn't until the 1990s where we actually started pursuing uh, this facility, 
and uh, securing funding and uh, drawing up plans and drawing up the idea of the story that would be told um, and looking for a location, which we are now. Um, and in, in the early 2000s is when we actually secured uh, our own funding uh, for this facility uh, through our revenues through oil and gas. And uh, through that, we're, ab we're able to leverage uh, other funding. Um, and it wasn't until then when the Canadian government and the provincial government kicked in uh, one-time capital costs uh, for construction. So, uh, so it took that long uh, for us to, uh, to be able to get the shovel into the ground and build this facility. And in July 07, we opened um, and with, a, with a big cel celebration and, uh, um, of course, all dignitaries and such. So we've been open three years now, and uh, we're slowly uh, making baby steps in terms of uh, getting recognized and, uh, and doing our, rolling out our marketing campaign. Uh, we still got to do a, a, a more international marketing campaign, but so far we're, we're doing really well. Uh, Shane, talk to us about the Blackfoot Crossing Interpretive Center. We're, we're here inside of the main uh, part of the exhibition at the Interpretive Center. Talk to us about what visitors would experience uh, should they come. Well, once uh, visitors do enter the facility, um, what they get is a, an amazing view of the Bull River Valley uh, here on the Sixka Nation. And uh, the area is known as Blackfoot Crossing. And for generations and generations, uh, this area has been known as a meeting place and uh, a shallow area uh, for uh, horses, women, and children to be able to cross the river easily. So, uh, so for generations, pe people, uh, our people have camped here and uh, use this area for uh, their you know, livelihood, um, for uh, ceremonies. Um, so it, it was known as a place of meeting. And in 1877, um, when we signed our Treaty Number no. 7 with the Queen, this is where we signed that treaty with the Blackfoot Confederacy. And uh, also at that treaty also were the, the Stony people and the Dene people of Treaty Number no. 7. So it's very significant. Also part of the interpretive center is our, again, our grand exhibit area, which is, uh, I guess, Canada's largest Blackfoot ex exhibition of uh, artifacts and information. And uh, there's four main uh, TP areas uh, within our exhibit uh, that cover uh, different aspects of Blackfoot culture, Blackfoot history, and uh, Blackfoot uh, way of life. Um, one of the, the uh, premier purposes of Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park is to preserve the, the Blackfoot way of life, language, and culture, and to teach not only visitors from across the world, but also our own people who may be uh, losing uh, uh, the Blackfoot way of life. Now, one of the unique things about uh, the center is that uh, it also introduces people to the history as well as the culture, and you get to experience that in visually, you get to experience that with the food, you get to experience that in, in, in participating in some of the actual life as people can 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 overnight in teepees talk to us about about this full experience that's available for the visitor well i guess going back the the blackfoot people um have always kept on to their traditions 
and um, on one side, and then also have uh, progressed and modernized with uh, the rest of the world. And so being Blackfoot today is, um, you know, it's very encompassing. Uh, we take our, our old traditions, we hang on to them, um, but we also, you know, pursue uh, careers and, and keep up with, uh, with uh, modern-day society. And so when people actually come and visit us, um, they are uh, getting a, an authentic Blackfoot experience uh, through who we are today um, and the traditions that uh, we've carried on from our generations past. Um, and we, we do still use the teepee uh, in everyday life. Uh, we, we use it uh, at home. We use it uh, at celebrations and, and for ceremonies, uh, such as our Sundance. Um, and so when people do stay with us, they are getting that, that true Blackfoot experience um, so it, it's nothing uh, in terms of taking um, a look, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. It's, it's who we are today. Um, so you're not going to see um, a lot of the, um, you know, what you'll see at other heritage uh, parks, you know, old-fashioned dresses and uh, how we used to do it uh, 100 years ago. It's, it's who we are today. And so that's, that's what uh, visitors will, will get when they come to Blackfoot Crossing Circle Park. Shane, you just mentioned Sundance, and you have an uh, exhibit here that um, uh, talks about the Sundance. And my understanding is that the last Sundance was conducted in the 60s or quite some time ago. Can you talk about the Sundance and um, how often they're held in, in the purpose of the Sundance? Back in the 1960s, yeah, there was a last Sundance that was held here in the Sixka Nation. Um, but uh, in, in, in recent years, in the 1990s, there was, there's been a revival of uh, the Sundance uh, with the Blackfoot people. And uh, again, taking back our culture, taking back who we are and uh, uh, building on our identity as Blackfoot people with the Sundance. Um, so since then, uh, it's been annual. <clears throat> every, uh, every July, uh, we, we host the Sundance here. On, on the Six Gun Nation, and uh, not only here, but uh, all the other Blackfoot uh, tribes have their own sun dances at various times during the summer, and um, so that's that's uh, so that's been the the history as as far as I know of the sun dance. So it's it is again, it's a community celebration, it's a time of ceremony, a time of prayer, but also a, t- a time to celebrate who we are and to uh, reconnect with uh, with everybody from the Blackfoot tribes. And is that ceremony um, open to the public, or is it uh, just within the Blackfoot Nation itself? No, the Black or the the Sundance is open to everyone. It is it is a um, it's a it's a it's a celebration and ceremony um, uh, put together, and people from all across the world have come to the Sundance to experience it, and it is hosted by the Blackfoot people, and you know very welcoming people. So. We encourage visitors to come and, and, and experience the Sundance to, to, to observe it. Uh, again, there is uh, individuals and societies in the Blackfoot uh, um, tribe that, uh, that head the ceremonies. And so there are some restrictions and protocol uh, with the Sundance. But again, um, it is an, it's an open celebration for all Blackfoot people, for all the families and members of uh, the Blackfoot tribes, and also our neighbors and people 
who want to come out and, and uh, experience it. We hope you enjoyed our show today. As always, we look forward to spending quality time with you and connecting with you during the week on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Stitcher. So follow us on those platforms and sign up for our newsletter and travel deals at our website, worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya Nee and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.